Okay, so um, here we are today with the 10th episode of the Milk Minute Dairy Podcast. And today is actually um, an episode that, that is the second part of the series to uh, episode number eight, I believe, in which we had Mr. Bruce Arnold from Alta Genetics. And if you remember, that episode was dealing with the uh, topic of, of the dairy cross, uh, beef cross dairy calves that, that is kind of a hot button issue these days and, and, a, and a trend that some of these dairymen are really starting to, uh, to participate in. And so on this episode, we're going to focus on the backside, which will be the carcass research and, and some of the um, scientific parts of how that looks from a consumer standpoint. And so today we have uh, Mr. Blake Foraker. He's with Texas Tech Meat Science. He's working on his PhD there and, and his major um, area of research is this topic. And so uh, we felt like um, he would be a, a good person to talk to that's not too far down the road. And as always, these episodes happen because of our gracious sponsors. And so this episode is sponsored uh, Capital Farm Credit here in Muleshoe uh, has this episode. They did number eight and they'll do number 10. So once again, if you uh, are in the farming and ranching business and you're looking for um, a lender who can support you with your goals and, and what you want to accomplish uh, with your operation, please don't hesitate to give any farm credit, capital farm credit guy uh, a, a ring, uh, especially if you're here. Go ahead and call Chase Lloyd and, and I'm sure he'll hook you up. So, so Blake, why don't you talk, uh, tell us a little bit more about, about yourself, maybe how you got to, to Lubbock and kind of where you, you know, um, where you uh, kind of came from and how you got into meat science and, and then we'll, uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, well, well, thanks, John, for having me on today. I'm really excited to talk about this topic. It's been, uh, you know, I guess three years um, of hard work that, uh, that we've been putting together on this, this uh, beef on dairy cross deal, but a little bit about me first. Uh, um, grew up in South Central Kansas, a little town called Burton. Uh, went to Kansas State for my undergraduate degrees, and it was really uh, judging teams. Uh, they got me interested in meat science, namely meat judging, um, but uh, participated on all the, the wool meat, livestock, meat animal eval judging teams at, at K-State. And then I uh, got time to start looking at grad school. I knew I wanted to continue my education with an emphasis in meat science, and um, that's where an opportunity presented itself at Colorado State University with, uh, with Dr. Dale Werner. Um, to focus uh, some research on, on meat science and then uh, also to coach the meat judging team there. So that was a great two-year opportunity at, at Colorado State. And about the time that I graduated there, uh, made the decision that I wanted to get a PhD to uh, pursue an academic career um, to ultimately go back and, and teach and, and do conduct research at the university level. A PhD was going to be required for that. And, and about that same time, Dr. Werner took a position with, uh, with Texas Tech um, in their meat science department, and he um, said that he was going to be working on some extensive research of these beef on dairy crosses. That that had interested me before with a, a previous internship in cattle procurement with Cargill, and so you know everything just kind of stars all kind of lined up just right for me to come here in the spring of 2019, and ever since I've been working on this topic with Dr. Worm. I got you. So uh, as we talk a little bit about your research and everything else, I just want to remind the listener that um, this is a, a trend, not, I don't want to say a trend or a fad, because I think it's going to stay around for a while, but, um, you know, in this area of Texas and even southwestern Kansas, um, you know, typically when we think about the beef production, 
we talk, we talk about feed yard work and, and, and from the beef side, and we talk about genetics that way. So to have uh, an opportunity to have um, dairymen who are doing what they can to increase their bottom line, not just selling fluid milk or milk products, they're, they're also uh, working to have a viable meat animal product uh, uh, there at their farm is a uh, is a pretty neat neat trend so you know let's talk a little about the meat side that's what we're going to talk about so kind of tell us a little bit about some of the research you've been doing and how it kind of started and and what you guys are doing to get as much data as you can on this topic yeah so uh, let's start with a little bit of a historical perspective kind of um, what, what we started with here in january of, of 2019 i think that was you know 2018 2019 was kind of the the shift in the industry uh, for two reasons, uh, why we started to see dairymen start to, to breed their dairy cows to, to beef sires, um, namely through artificial insemination. But, but the two main reasons for that were firstly that the dairy industry, unlike perhaps any other industry, has done an incredible job from a genetic advancement standpoint. Or in other words, they're, they've, they're, they've got genetic tools, um, even, even more so than the beef industry, to identify those superior producing cows within the cow herd um, for which they can retain replacement heifers out of. And so what that allows them to do is identify those cows, perhaps use sex semen on those cows to generate those high producing replacement heifers. And then that, that leaves, you know, 60, 70% of the cow herd with some opportunity for them to, to gain some additional income. And just like you mentioned there, John, in recent years with uh, with fluctuations in milk prices and, and, and dairy farmers really struggling from a financial standpoint, any kind of uh, additional income that they can get on top of what they're getting already getting for milk is a positive thing. And so um, in, in terms of creating a terminal beef on dairy cross that's thriftier and, and healthier and uh, more efficient from a growth standpoint compared to the straight bred dairy animal, those calves are, are inherently worth more as day olds than the, than the straight bred Holstein animal. So those are the two reasons why we've kind of seen the shift in the industry. We recognized that shift here at Texas Tech and put together an industry-wide meeting in January of 2019 with all of the major packers involved, several feed yard operators and, and, and cattle feeders associations, in addition to some dairymen and some genetic companies, um, to kind of spearhead an effort <laughs> and understand what's going on in the industry and what needs to be addressed from a scientific standpoint and how we as researchers can assist them. And so ultimately, what spun out of that meeting was a, a proposal to the National Cattlemen's Beef Association um, that was funded through their beef checkoff dollars to understand these cattle, um, like you say, from the back end or understand from a, a retailer and consumer standpoint, what's the value of these, these cattle relative to the, uh, the traditional conventional Holstein animal and then beef from conventional beef animals that's, that's already entering the supply chain. And they think that that's, that's important, firstly, to understand that these these cattle really aren't uh, aren't new um, in the sense uh, to the, the entire beef industry. They're not an additional source of cattle. We're not increasing numbers. We're just changing the composition of the straight bred dairy population that's entering the U.S. fed uh, cattle slaughter. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is, you know, particularly in this region of Texas and Southwest Kansas, is that the number of dairies and how that contributes significantly to the amount of fed beef that gets slaughtered um, in the United States. It's to the tune that every one in five uh, fed beef calves that gets slaughtered in the United States annually uh, is dairy influenced, whether that be some sort of composite or crossbred breeding, like what we're talking about today, or just a straight bred Holstein animal. Um, that, used to be, that, that was the traditional model 10, 20 years ago. 
So one in five of those calves is dairy influence, and, and that perhaps lends itself to this crossbreeding scenario changing uh, a one in five segment of the beef industry. So it's relatively low hanging fruit in terms of opportunity to understand these cattle better. And it's a major shift within the industry from a positive perspective in the sense that not only are these cattle more efficient, but uh, but there's some positive notes that they're receiving from the, the dairy side in terms of eating quality. And so, like I say, that, that study um, was set out uh, in spring of 2019 to answer the question of how do these beef on dairy crosses compare from an eating quality standpoint to their parent breeds or to the conventional beef uh, breeds and to, to beef from straight red Holstein animals. So that three-way comparison in terms of eating quality um, evaluated all objective measures of, uh, of tenderness and flavor, such as the shear force. We did some trained sensory descriptive uh, sensory analyses in addition to consumer analyses. And that was the power behind the study. We fed over 560 uh, consumers these steaks ultimately at the end of the day for them to tell us are they, where do they, they lie on the acceptability spectrum and where do they fit um, relative to the, the other two cattle populations? Are we really changing the, the supply of beef from an eating quality standpoint by incorporating these beef on dairy crosses into branded programs um, which, uh, which you know, at the time they're, they're, uh, they were being snuck in at one point, but now I think everyone in the industry recognizes what these cattle are. But uh, that was the, the goal um, from the beginning. That ended up being uh, one of my colleagues, Jenna Frank's master's work, um, worked alongside her to, to complete that project. But what we found at the end of the day is uh, that these beef on dairy crosses relative to um, their, their straight bred dairy counterparts, namely Holsteins, um, not only were, were these animals, did they have a larger ribeye area, um, they, they performed very well from a marbling standpoint relative to the native beef cattle in the sense that they had higher marbling scores. But, but the one thing that we designed the study um, for was to stratify by quality grade. And so we wanted to understand, was there an interaction between quality grade and cattle type to the tune that did these beef on dairy crosses at a higher level of marbling, perhaps a modest level of marbling, perform the same as conventional beef at a lower level of marbling or vice versa. Did the conventional beef at a higher level of marbling perform the same as these beef on dairy crosses at a lower level of marbling? Well, we found no difference in, in, the, in the interaction of, of quality grade and cattle type. So what that means at the end of the day is regardless of what the marbling level is, um, these cattle types that were, were true in the sense that we averaged over um, quality grade for all of our comparisons. So, go ahead. Oh, uh, so one thing I was going to ask you, you talked about, um, and I think that was a good, I'm glad you mentioned the quality standpoint and how your, your research kind of set up. I have, I want you to keep going with that, with your, with your, um, your thoughts, because I have three questions here at the end, here at the end of this little portion, but uh, keep going. I, I interjected you, but keep going. No, no, you're good. So, Again, we, we stratified um, these cattle types across quality grades. And then we, once we ate those steaks, we found that those steaks that came from dairy bred animals or straight bred Holsteins were the most tender, um, both by objective assessment uh, with, uh, with sheer force and with our trained panelists. And then consumers found that steaks from dairy bred animals were the most tender. This, this wasn't surprising to us. This had been found in previous literature. Now, we wanted to understand, though, that in these beef on dairy crosses, does the dairy breeding provide a positive influence in this crossbred scenario 
from a tenderness standpoint. And in fact, it, it did uh, to the tune that these beef on dairy crosses performed intermediate to the straight bred dairy animal and the conventional beef animal from a tenderness standpoint. So we're realizing some of the positive attributes in terms of tenderness with the influence of dairy breeding in these cattle without the sacrifice of the inferior muscling that we traditionally see in the straight bred dairy animal. Additionally, one of the, the major concerns, particularly from a retailer standpoint, is steak size, steak shape, steak dimension. As we all have probably seen um, at, at the supermarket, if they're selling beef from dairy animals, those steaks are very triangular. And so um, if we're putting those on a plate, you know, if you go into the, the scenario of you know, greens, beans, mashed potatoes, and your strip loin steak, it's not quite filling the plate. It doesn't quite look as appealing if you've got a really angular dairy steak on there. So we want to understand, do these crosses still present the same challenge? The answer is no, uh, that those steaks from these beef on dairy crosses um, are similar in their shape and size to uh, the conventional beef animal. So we seem to mitigate the challenge that we have in angularity of steak shape with the, the influence of beef in these dairy crosses. In addition to that, we, we did note some advantages in flavor performance, namely some of the beefier and buttery type notes with the commonly associated with the, the dairy side of things in these beef on dairy crosses. Although it wasn't picked up by consumers, our trained panelists did identify that difference in flavor um, within that study. So there's some reasons for that, some technicalities, some actual biochemical um, properties of beef from Holstein animals that contributes to, to, to beef from dairy bred animals being the most flavorful, which is also the same reason why it's the most tender um, because of the oxidative properties of the, the muscle fibers within that, uh, within that meat. But uh, so, so we measured all of those things to have more of a, a laboratory understanding of these eating quality properties. But the other thing I wanna to bring to light here and perhaps was perhaps the greatest uh, finding within that work was the performance of these steaks in the retail case. And so traditionally, you know, the, we, we were never able to sell steaks at a retail setting um, within the same store from both conventional beef animals and straight red dairy animals because the beef from the, the dairy animal was substantially darker in color, not to mention the, the triangular shape that we already talked about. But not only is this beef from dairy animals darker in color, but it's for the same reasons that it's darker in color that it discolors at a much quicker rate. Or in other words, that those retailers are having to throw those steaks out um, uh, much earlier on within their shelf life than, be, than, than beef steaks from conventional beef animals. So we were never able to sell side by side steaks from dairy animals and steaks from conventional beef animals. That was the, the big question going into this is where do the beef on dairy crosses sit? Well, um, th they side a lot closer to the, the conventional beef in the sense that we're able to get an added 24 hours of retail display out of both conventional beef and beef from beef on dairy crosses than we are the straight bred Holstein animal. So that's that's big news, not only from a, a retailer standpoint, but from a, a sustainability um, standpoint. You know, we're, we're affecting one in every five steaks produced in the, the U.S. beef industry. You know, just simplistically, one in every five of those is having better color and shelf life performance um, because of this, this influence of beef in the beef on dairy cross. Not to mention that we're, we're realizing some tenderness and, and perhaps flavor benefits from the dairy side in this composite population. So, you know, as you opened up, really a win-win um, in this, this beef on dairy cross scenario. You mentioned something about a, a fatter trend, and I completely agree with you, John, that 
but this beef on dairy cross scenario is going is here to stay and it's it's going to continue uh we're no we're, we're past the point of cleaning out the bottom end of semen tanks to breed these dairy cows um and, and it's more you know going to be figuring out genetics from a, a premium standpoint to figure out the right bulls to breed to these dairy cows from here on out yeah, and I probably should have uh, prefaced the, the, what you just said a little bit uh, for some of those listeners who might not understand exactly what we're what we're diving into here. But um, I want you to explain in a pretty basic sense, um, and, I'll, and I, in a way, you know, I want the the listeners who don't know, who aren't as well versed, the guys that go to the grocery store, look at the price tag, pick up a steak, take it home, versus people like me and you. Uh, well, I mean. Not a lot of us. Some of some of us may not go to the store to get beef, but in the in the case that we may, uh, you know, you can always tell the people that judge meats in 4-H when they're a little kid or FFA and and maybe some in college because those are the guys that have every single steak that's out there on the case laid out, trying to figure out which one's the best in terms of quality and and, and other other factors, and then and then uh, kind of making sure that that's the cut that they say is the cut, and then also comparing that to the price. And so there's all different people that are consumers and, and their appeal levels are different. But uh, what, oh, I just want to kind of say something real quick, and then you can speak to it a little bit more. Um, but, you know, we talk about consumer appeal a lot in terms of size, color, marbling score. And so for those of you who are listening, um, when we talk about marbling score, and we're not going to get into all that right now, but, um, you know, marbling score is, is more or less a, a a number or a score put on uh, uh, the amount of marbling within that piece of steak or that piece of meat or whatever. And then that kind of is helps to determine the quality grade. So all you people out there who uh, you're like, well, I like choice or I like prime or whatever, you know, there's, you got to understand that when we get into the grocery and, and that form uh, or that part of the retail chain, you know, there's certain grades that are offered to the public and certain that aren't, but, um, we talk about that a lot in the meat industry because that that right there, there's some pricing differences, and then there's also obviously a, a taste difference and some appeal that goes into that. So that's kind of what he's talking about in terms of uh, tasteability and and appeal, and and you know he talked about buttery flavor. Those are the things that are tied right back into quality. But you you mentioned something about shear force, and uh, I, and I know what that is, but I want you to explain to the consumer what that what that method is uh, in, in a nutshell for um, for determining some some tenderness and things like that. So they kind of know, we can go back to that real quick. Yeah, so uh, great point on marbling. I think to, to sum up that discussion is, uh, is marbling is the insurance factor, basically that you're gonna have a positive eating experience. So as you increase in marbling level, as you increase in what we call uh, USDA quality grade, or um, in incre increasing in, in, in amount of marbling goes from select to choice to prime within our U.S. Uh, beef industry. If you, if you go to the supermarket and you see a steak labeled as, as prime or choice, those are going to ensure that you have a higher eating satisfaction than if that product's labeled select. And, and quite honestly, we don't, we don't see much product labeled select. It's just unlabeled in the supermarket right. anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, back to, to what you were mentioning on shear force. So that's shear force is an objective measurement of, of tenderness, or in other words, it's a standardized technique which we use uh, where, where we use an instrument to measure the amount of force that's required to cut through a steak, essentially. And so 
Um, what that looks like is we'll cook a steak and then we'll remove some, some slices or some cores from the interior portion of that steak and then measure the amount of resistance required to, to cut that piece of meat. So just as if you were eating it, um, we're measuring the amount of resistance within that product. So just an objective tool and a, an instrument that we use to, to measure um, what we would be tasting um, in a real life setting. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that then, and I think, I think uh, your average consumer needs to know that there's that much research going into, I mean, that's been around for a while, but that, you know, most people wouldn't understand that, but that we actually put that much effort into figuring out tenderness and, and what it takes to, slice that steak or whatever it's not um it's not just a, an educated guess there's a lot of science behind it um you talk about efficiency with those cattle and uh, and i want to go a little bit more into the breeding side i know we might skip around a little bit because i think it's a cool topic but um when you talk about efficiency have you have you guys noticed that there's some of that that the dairy the dairy beef cross cattle are more efficient in the way that they either um um feed out or from a quality standpoint, from a carcass standpoint, yield, um, it, it, are they, is there any, any data that supports that claim? Yeah, so I think firstly, we need to understand again, I keep going back to the, the one in five concept, right? And so we're, we're basically changing um, a consist of the, the U.S. fed beef supply, but one fifth of it, right? Where we're transitioning from a straight bred dairy animal, um, and, and I like to you know, use the word monstrosity because everyone understands that the, the Holstein steer is, a is and was a, a major problem in from a, a feedlot standpoint. Now, I think there's many guys out there that would tell you that they've got them figured out and they would, they're perfectly happy feeding the Holstein steers. But the, the fact of the matter is the amount of time and money and energy that was spent figuring out how to feed a Holstein steer to its optimum um, was extensive, uh, to say the least. So we're replacing that animal with these beef on dairy crosses. And so when you mention efficiency, I think perhaps it's, that's the biggest takeaway from this entire breeding scenario is the efficiency of these progeny relative to the straight bred Holstein steer or animal that they're replacing. Okay, so we're feeding those Holsteins in the feedlot for, for well over 300 days on average. Now, 330 days is, 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 is probably the average for feeding a Holstein steer, whereas depending on what weight these, these beef on dairy crosses come in, we're talking anywhere from 190 to, to 230 days on feed. Um, of these cows and in some cases last 160 days, which we talk about days spent in the feed yard. That's the, the greatest contribution to, to efficiency or lack thereof within that animal's life. And so there's lots of you know, negative message surrounding sustainability in the beef industry. But, but this, I think, is a really positive takeaway um, for what the beef industry is trying to do. And, and again, low-hanging fruit here, replacing one in every five of those those Holstein animals, those monstrosities from an efficiency standpoint with these beef on dairy crosses where we're finishing them in 100 or, or greater less days um, is huge from an efficiency and sustainability standpoint. Less feed, less water, um, just less input and resources to manage those animals simply because their, their, their beef breeding or right, them, them being half beef allows them to finish at a much quicker rate and convert feed um, at a much higher level than the, the traditional dairy bred animal. So, um, you know, uh, and I'm sure as, I'm as sure the research as gets, gets more and more um, intense or in-depth, I guess my question guess is, my question. what, um, um, let's see, how do I put this? 
from a standpoint of breeds and what they're using genetically for breeds, like whether it's Angus or Simmental or Charlay or whatever, is there a is is there a certain breed that that's crossed these dairy animals that that sticks out to the you know that that fits that checks the boxes a little better than another one in terms of quality efficiency, um, days on feed, um, tenderness. I mean you know eating um, satisfaction. I mean, is there one that sticks out? I mean you know a lot of guys are going to talk the Angus deal because of 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 the marketing with CAB and all that stuff, but. Is there one, you know, that say, okay, these this pen of dairy cross calves uh, or beef cross dairy calves are are hitting that 80 percent choice deal, or is 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 there is there some data to to suggest that some breeds are a little bit better than others, and with from an all around standpoint? Yeah, that's a that's a great point and question, John, and I think that so that's kind of where we're at now in this scenario um you know producer i think dairy producers have realized that this is here to stay that this is positive um from a calf revenue standpoint so so now their next question is what bull do i breed to which breed do i pick you know the genetic companies are at the same time trying to figure out what are the what are the best options to provide to their customers and when we're, we're getting you know as researchers here at texas tech we hear all of that in the industry and, and what's going on so i'm going to share a little bit about about my opinion here but i think if we holistically think about the u.s beef industry you know keep dairy separate here but the, the u.s beef industry in terms of use of artificial insemination and the um the seed stock producers that are producing bulls you know use of, of, of ai in the the commercial beef industry the, the slaughter progeny that we get from AI is, is probably less than 10% of the, the fed slaughter population annually. Uh, again, I'm just pulling that number. I don't know exactly what that is. That's probably reported by USDA, but, but generally I would say that the less than 10% of the progeny that enter today's packing plant from a beef side um, are, are resulting from AI. Now, conversely on the dairy side, when we're producing these beef on dairy crosses, 100% of those are progeny from, from an artificial insemination, right? So, so we're using a straw of, uh, of, of beef sire semen in every single case in creating these progeny. Now, I mentioned that to say that the averages of breeds um, becomes less important in this scenario. Or in other words, when we're, we're looking at breed-to-breed -breed differences within the total U.S. beef industry, we're talking about, you know, Charlet on average being you know, heavier muscled and leaner on average as a whole in the, the progeny that they produce compared to perhaps like a, an Angus breed. Now, with that being said though, on the dairy side of things, when we're creating these beef on dairy crosses, we're selecting the individual bulls, all right? And so I think it becomes much less of a breed to breed discussion, okay? Because we're not relying as much on the entire population from an average standpoint. We're trying to select the bulls within that breed that, that most optimize this terminal scenario. Again, every one of these beef on dairy crosses is being slaughtered. It's a it's a very terminal scenario. We're we're not retaining females. Okay. Now I don't want them to minimize the, the importance of of bulls being dual purpose in the sense of maternal and terminal characteristics. That that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying though is that in the beef on dairy cross scenario, we're selecting specific bulls. And so I think for us to sit here and talk about breed you know that that's one conversation i think that that yes there I, I know that there is some work going on um trying to identify certain breeds uh, that that best optimize this scenario but again 
I go back to the the concept that that we're we're relying less on averages of of an overall breed and much more relying on the influence of an individual bull since we're AI in this scenario. And so I think when we start talking about breeds, do those things that are traditionally hold true in, in, on an average basis? Do they hold true in the beef on dairy population? Yes. Okay, those, those beef on dairy crosses that come out of continental influenced breeds or sires, those those animals are generally heavier muscled and generally leaner. Um, but at the same token, generally have less marbling, okay? Um, but I think once we, if we start thinking about it from a sire standpoint, we have to realize that the breed, you know, while on average may not be the heaviest muscle, may not be the leanest, but on average, the, the Angus breed has the great ability um, of any of the breeds, according to the, the U.S. Uh, Meat Animal Research Center data, the most recent data that's been published on uh, comparing sire breeds. And so once we recognize that there's large variation or, or in, in any of these breeds, we can basically just select for those sires that are the best in rates that we're interested in, like ribeye area, like growth rate, the things that we're trying to overcome with the, the challenges of dairy breeding in these beef on dairy crosses. So I guess I'm not going to sit here and advocate for one breed or against another breed. What I am saying, though, is we have to stop thinking because it's such an AI and terminal scenario, this beef on dairy cross deal is we have to stop thinking uh, away from from total from just a, an average breed and start thinking down the, the the way of sire, because I think that you could find an outstanding Angus sire, an outstanding Charlet sire, an outstanding limousine sire that perhaps all perform equal on, on Holstein cows. And the other thing I want to note here is that the sire that you're picking to breed to dairy cows is probably and, and very much likely a different uh, sire than, than would be the best sire to breed to your beef cows. And, and it's all, you know, a, a balancing act trying to figure out what's important um, in, in selecting those sires. Now, I'm not a geneticist. Uh, I won't claim to be, but just a little bit of the, the research that I've read also suggests that we're, we're trying to maximize breed complementarity here in breeding these, you know, these beef breeds to these dairy breeds, right? And so we're maximizing heterosis in, in this, regardless of really what breed we pick, right? So if we, if we have Angus and, and breed that, that sire to a Holstein cow, right? We're, those are two very, very different breeds and they've been selected for different purposes for, for decades, if not centuries uh, of years. So, but I also know that the geneticists would also say that if, uh, if that's a composite bull or a crossbred bull or like a Sim Angus bull and we're breeding to, to a Holstein cow, we're, we're in increasing our heterosis um, additionally there. So I think thinking along those lines, it, probably the answer to your question there, John, is, is it's probably not just an individual breed. It's looking at within the bull in order to optimize the characteristics of that bull. It, it may be a composite breed bull like a Sim Angus or like a Limflex or something along those lines. Right, right, gotcha. So, um, do you think that there will be an opportunity in the future? You know, uh, we a lot of times we we are all aware of niche markets and and marketing schemes that that um, for any product that that tie these products with a certain program or protocol, and then um, just to kind of gain some consumer appeal for certain brands, for lack of a better word. You know, we've got certified Angus beef, we have certified Hereford beef, we have all sorts of different branded programs. Do you think that there's a there's an opportunity for these calves to fit in their own kind of branded program at some point down the line? Yes, I think, uh, you know, we've talked about some major key points here, the consumer acceptability of this product from an eating quality standpoint. Again, I think that most people, if you would 
just say that, oh, this beef is from a dairy-influenced animal would say that that's a negative thing when, when in fact, uh, the inverse is quite true in the, in the sense that the dairy breeding very much positively influences the quality of beef from a consumer satisfaction standpoint. So, so we've got consumer acceptance going for these dairy-influenced crosses. Um, in addition to that, we talked about the sustainability and the efficiency of these crossbreds. But uh, to your point about uh, are programs an opportunity or are, are people thinking along those lines, the answer to that is yes. Um, for these beef on dairy crosses, even, even perhaps more so than, than the animal coming from the conventional beef uh, system. And, and the reason for that, we haven't, we haven't talked about this and the industry at this, still at this point is not economically incentivizing this, but I, I would venture to guess that within the next five, 10, 15 years, we're gonna see a beef that starts to put a premium on traceability uh, because the consumer wants to know where their product come for, comes from. And quite frankly, model struggles with that substantially um, and the inherently the system's already built in with the dairy model i mean the the tag that the, that calf receives at birth um, can be traced all the way to slaughter and we can look at that tag of slaughter and trace it all the way back to the dairy it came from um, and, and that's really really important uh, when you're trying to build a fully sustainable program so we're talking about consumer consumer acceptance uh, we're talking about sustainability and then adding the traceability component that's already built into these beef on dairy calves with you know if the, if the industry decides that they're going to start uh, paying a premium for traceability tomorrow we don't have to make any adjustments to the, the dairy system we would have to make some adjustments in the beef system um, in order to obtain that so you know from from the consumer from sustainability and from traceability all those things kind of line up the stars for for branded programs to really start uh, to be an opportunity for these beef on dairy crosses. So yes, I think I think that's something that uh, perhaps is coming down the pipeline. Gotcha. You know, we uh, we we've we've kind of touched on everything in terms of uh, the basics of the, of the research. Is there anything else that you want to add from the standpoint of what you guys are doing, or what you guys are doing at Texas Tech, or or where you see this leading yourself in terms of the research that's that's in with this topic? Yeah, so there's two main challenges with these beef on dairy crosses that uh, that we're working to address. And I think that um, th these two challenges are, are much larger than, than the beef on dairy cross animal itself. I just think that the scenario um, manifests itself to a greater degree in these beef on dairy crosses. But it's a it's a, a, a beef industry wide problem. And those those two main concerns are one, liver abscesses and two. Um, muscling confirmation red meat yield. And so I, I want to briefly uh, touch on each of those two points and, and some of the work that um, we've recently done and, and will continue to do to address those concerns. But traditionally dairy animal, dairy influenced animals uh, have a higher incidence of liver abscesses compared to their, their beef influenced counterparts or the, or the you know, straight bred beef animal. And that's traditionally been thought because uh, the dairy animal is on feed so much longer. Uh, so we're, we're just feeding a high concentrate diet to that animal um, for a greater number of days, causing a, a greater incidence or having the, the opportunity for a greater incidence of acidosis uh, for that animal to, to subsequently develop a, a diseased liver condition or an abscessed liver. What happens there is once the, the liver gets abscessed, not only is that liver condemned, but then we start to have problems in severe cases of liver abscesses where we have to start trimming the outside skirt of that, that beef carcass. We have to slow down the chain speed. 
in the beef packing plant. All of those things are are major um, costs to a, a beef producer or a, a beef packer, um, and, and that's why we we see major discounts for for dairy animals. Not to mention that they're of lower muscle to bone and lower dressing percentage. Now those same characteristics uh, start to bleed over into these beef on dairy crosses to the tune where we might see 60 to 80 percent liver condemnation in the straight bred dairy animal. We see about a 60 percent liver condemnation in these beef on dairy crosses. I think the question here is, it, is, it, uh, is it because they're, they're additionally on feed and on concentrate feed for so long? Is it part of the calf management phase? Is it, we haven't talked a lot about the calf ranch. I think there's still a lot of unknowns about the calf ranch phase of this. Cause again, it's, it's a dairy system. Again, we're just replacing those stray bred dairy animals with these beef on dairy crosses. So they're still going to the calf ranch um, after they're born at the dairy. So is there, are there management practices there that, that we can uh, can focus on that perhaps mitigate early on in that calf's life, um, the incidence or the opportunity for that animal to develop a diseased liver later on in the feedlot state. And then secondarily, um, as I mentioned previously, the, the other concern or challenge, again, not just to the beef on dairy cross, but to the, the overall beef industry is understanding confirmation and, and trying to get at uh, the best estimate of red meat yield for the carcasses that are entering our beef packing facilities. Inevitably, we've, uh, you know, from a sire selection standpoint, traditionally used the ribeye area EPD. And I think that we've recognized that ribeye area EPD is great if it's a true representation of the conformation of that carcass. But some of our data would show that ribeye area alone is a fairly poor predictor of red meat yield and carcass conformation uh, within that carcass. Namely, we just uh, completed a, a study looking within these beef on dairy crosses and noted that um, even uh, even uh, comparing those that look most beef-like in their visual appearance and those that look more dairy-like in their visual appearance, there was no difference in ribeye area across those divergent visual phenotypes. But there were major differences in the conformation and the muscling of the hindquarter and the round of those carcasses. So I think that that somewhat suggests that putting selection pressure on ribeye area alone is probably not the way to go. Um, some breeders and some folks have started taking a step towards ribeye area per hundredweight. I think that's a step in the right direction, but I don't think that it completely gets us to where we need to be in terms of understanding carcass conformation, the shape of the hindquarter, the shape of the chuck, and other um, areas of, of musculature on that carcass. And so that's something that we're trying to understand here at Texas Tech. We have recently completed a, a red meat yield test, a, a, a full-scale carcass cutout test where basically we cut down that carcass at, at chain speed um, within a, a large-scale packing facility to understand yield differences between cattle types. So between conventional beef cattle, uh, straight bred dairy cattle, and then these beef on dairy crosses. And so those results will be forthcoming, but we've done that work. And, uh, and I think that kind of the next step for the industry, again, not just in the beef on dairy crosses, but in all cattle, is trying to, to wrap our head around some metrics of, of red meat yield. So from a sire selection and from a genetic selection standpoint, we can get better because right now today, really the only indicator of muscularity that we have in these cattle is ribeye area. And like I say, that's a fairly poor predictor of red meat yield. We need some sort of carcass imaging or some sort of round confirmation scoring. Um, if not just visually looking at the cattle. And I think that most cattlemen can appreciate when I say that just looking at cattle is very important in making breeding decisions. And so I think ultimately, if you're making decisions right now and breeding dairy cows, look at the bulls um, in addition to looking at the data. Right, yeah. 
That's and that's pretty basic in terms of animal husbandry and and and, and selection and breeding. I think, and I think sometimes just as in we talk about farming, you know, and getting out there and actually putting some eyes on things is is definitely uh, a, a a trait and a skill that that maybe more people should adopt whenever we're trying to advance, you know, especially or be more productive, uh, so we can kind of see what's going on, you know. Um, I, I have not personally ever ever tasted the beef from a beef dairy cross. Um, obviously, I, it's not something that I um, have been able to get my hands on yet. But you know, I, I wonder uh, from the standpoint of of different populations of of consumers, you know, and and kind of more about uh, you know, you got your guys that uh, that are if it doesn't come from from a beef animal, you know, that's going to be a hard hard. Uh, I mean, portion of, of consumers to maybe, you know, get them, get their head wrapped around buying this kind of beef. Is that something that you guys have looked at too, or is that not a, not an issue or, or what do you guys think about that? I think what you're asking is uh, if the consumer knows that it's from a dairy animal, are they less likely to, or less inclined to purchase that product? Is or that, more inclined maybe. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Well, again, Looking at the data, um, we would show that the influence of dairy breeding is very positive, whether that be in a straight bred dairy animal or in a half blood dairy animal. The influence of dairy breeding is very positive from an eating quality standpoint, both in terms of tenderness and in terms of flavor. So I think for someone to say that that beef from a, a dairy influenced animal is inferior, our data would 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 not support that uh, that whatsoever. And so gotcha. um, again, I think that. It, Traditionally, people think that, that dairy animals are inferior from an eating quality standpoint just because they look inferior relative to their beef counterparts, right? Just lighter muscled, and, you know, from a, all the inefficiency things that we talked about. But if you if you talk to kind of some of the old schoolers, you know, the, the old dairy farmers, the, you know, those are the ones 50 years ago, they were they were putting dairy beef, you know, beef from these, these fat Holstein steers in their freezer, and they said that was the best beef they'd eaten in their entire life, right? And so, uh, you know, that, there's your anecdotal evidence from a, I guess, somewhat of a consumer standpoint, but then we've got the hard scientific evidence that, that says, you know, when consumers are blinded to what the cattle type is, they actually, you know, note some added tenderness and, and flavor benefits to dairy influence beef. Don't necessarily see that there's a, a concern in terms of eating quality there. The one thing I would say that as a whole, the dairy industry needs to focus on is management of these calves early on and and from a consumer perception standpoint there's a lot of challenge um, and and negative perception around calf ranches and a lot of that negative perception simply isn't true because we've been to many of these calf ranches and they are superior in terms of the management of those calves it's, it's quite impressive you know everyone always says that big is bad but i think in the terms of, of calf ranches and the way that those calves are managed it's uh it's superior um, perhaps even other management practices. And so I think that that's the challenge is for the consumer perception of the calf ranch. That's going to be the biggest hurdle um, in the future to developing branded beef programs around dairy influenced cattle. Yeah, you know, uh, I was telling you about some of the episodes we've done in the past. And one of the past ones we had was a vet here in, in Muleshoe that's been doing some some um, some ultrasounding of, of, of calves to, to detect uh, subclinical pneumonia. And actually, uh, you know, addressing that with the use of ultrasound instead of visual inspection and, and using that data to put a score on those on those animals that might be right there where they're uh, they're going to be affected by BRD a little earlier than than other calves. And so, um, 
Yeah, I know that there are some negative connotations with uh, with some of the things that we do, whether it's the dairy or beef industry. And so that brought up a good point that, you know, uh, for their management style and what they have to do to get a live calf and get a calf going and having that as another form of, of income, they do a fantastic job of, of managing those calves in the early part of their life all the way through to where they're going to, wherever their end point's going to be. And um, one thing about the dairy industry uh, that I've noticed coming from a beef, beef background, <coughs> excuse me, is that these guys are really good at, at looking at research, practical research, and maybe, um, you know, implementing some of that stuff quicker than maybe other parts of the industry would. And so uh, from a health and a management standpoint, they're, they're on, on point with getting some of that stuff going a lot quicker than maybe other people. And, and one thing I was going to mention is that, you know, this is, this is happening right now. As far as the beef entering the chain, it's happening right now. I mean, this is not something that's, hey, we're doing research on 500 calves and it'll be coming to a grocery store near you in three months. This, you know, this is happening now. Um, right. There's tons of calves that are, uh, especially in this area around Muleshoe, that um, are, are beef sired dairy calves and, and they are entering the feeding phase or the preconditioning phase at, at, at high rates. And so they will be in the chain quick. The, the genetic companies tell us that they're selling two to four times more beef semen into for dairy use to dairies than they are selling beef semen to beef producers. So, wow. Yeah, it's major. Yeah, and because, you know, I mean, that's, that's probably true because um, if, if they're just selling, you know, a lot of guys are, you know, utilizing their own uh, own bulls and stuff like that from a beef standpoint, but uh, from a from a semen standpoint, I would I wouldn't you know uh, you look at the dairy standpoint and 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 that's artificial breeding you know in essence I mean that's that's how they have done for years and years and so I could see where that's a a very real statistic. Um, yeah. where, where do you where do you see uh, is uh, is is the these beef products um, overall? It's is it is it going to be uh, something that's that's really handled? in more parts of the country than others, or, you know, there's, you know, cause we all know that, um, you know, just like with the feed yard business, um, we're sitting right in the middle of, of beef world, pretty much. Uh, the Great Plains, Southern Great Plains, all the way up in the Midwest. Um, I guess from a supply chain standpoint, this beef will just fit in with the overall beef that's going in the chain and, and going, you know, all over, I guess. Uh, and then also enter, entering the export markets too. That's right. So, you know, again, today there's no differentiation between right. beef from conventional beef animals and beef from beef on dairy crosses. There's not been a program designed around that. I would say that these beef, beef from these beef on dairy crosses is entering programs. And so it's being marketed alongside regular and conventional beef. Um, and I really don't know that I see, foresee that changing in the near future. Um, unless a branded beef program comes out. So I do think it is important to note that this isn't really changing the, the supply of beef. We're just, we're just transitioning from beef from, from Holsteins to beef from beef on dairy crosses, right? So we're, we're just changing the consist of that one in five. Now, I would just traditionally say that, that because of the challenges that I mentioned in the retail case um, associated with beef from Holstein animals, um, traditionally, beef from Holstein animals has been marketed through food service. 
Okay, so we're we're not we're not selling that at the supermarket. We're selling it through a um, a food service distributor to restaurants, and and consequently, many many you know high end restaurants actually prefer Holstein beef because of all the the eating quality you know uh, characteristics that are, that are very positive that I mentioned previously. But um, I guess I, I don't really see that these beef and these beef on dairy crosses changing that, um, other than the the tune that we would see less beef. Um, Holsteins and, and more beef from beef on dairy crosses. Right. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, this is, this, like I said, it's a really interesting way to look at, at, at increasing the dairyman's bottom line, but also adding some, some value to what we already have in place. And, and so I, I think your research has probably proven that every day that you guys put, put pencil to paper on that, I, I assume. Right. And, and I think for the dairyman, well, I think that there, there, it's a win-win for, for both beef guys and for dairy guys. And so for the dairymen, I think, you know, we talked about bottom line of, of these beef on dairy cross calves, you know, today that the market that we're being told is, is that uh, these calves are worth anywhere from 200 to $300 more as day olds than the stray bred Holstein animal. So these crosses, if the dairy, dairy farmers just selling them as day olds, 200 to $300 more per calf. Um, compared to the straight bred dairy animals they've traditionally produced. Now, the opportunity there though is for these these dairy guys to to realize some of the efficiency and capitalize on the efficiency of these crosses in the feed yard, and perhaps look at opportunities of retained ownership. Work work with some feed yard operators and kind of understand how these calves are performing. And I think too that that helps the dairymen in, in terms of selecting the sires to breed to. Uh, their dairy cows um, so that they can make more profitable calves and then realize some of that profit later on um, at, at the packer. And then I think secondarily to that, uh, there's opportunity in it for the beef guys and, and namely seed stock producers, because there's perhaps, the, you know, as we mentioned earlier, no other opportunity to get data back, carcass data back on large numbers of progeny in order for you to make sire selection and de decisions there's perhaps no greater opportunity than breeding one bull to a whole bunch of dairy cows and understanding how he performs. Um, you, you can't, you don't really see that um, near as often in the beef side, but you know, just, just taking one bull to, to a dairy or a couple bulls to a dairy and understanding how they perform, you can get a lot of progeny in one generation very rapidly um, through this scenario. And, and I think that it's, it's a win-win for those guys to, to identify their, their be best beef bulls that work great in a terminal scenario. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree with that. That's there's a lot more cows for them to to uh, to breed to in, in that first generation. That's a that's a really good point you made. Well, Blake, uh, we're kind of kind of trying to get wrapped up. I know this is the Friday before Labor Day, and I know uh, I don't know as far as you guys from a student standpoint. And I know that you guys don't always keep your head in the book. I'm sure you guys like to go home and enjoy enjoy your weekends. But if there's anything else you'd like to say to wrap up kind of what we've talked about. Uh, now would be a good time to do that. I, I mean, like I said, and I, I appreciate you guys getting on there and, and helping me with this today. Yeah, you bet. I mean, I would just close with, again, this is a, a positive thing that's happening to the beef industry, right, to, and the dairy industry as well. And again, we're, we're not really uh, um, adding to the beef supply. We're just positively changing the concept of it. And I think that that's the, the important thing and that, uh, that these beef on dairy crosses are not inferior um to to uh the, the traditional dairy animal and in fact they realize some positive attributes from the dairy side from eating quality and some positive attributes from the beef side in terms of yield and efficiency and so i think that's a practice that that needs to continue and i think we also have to realize that 
that uh, we're, we're really improving and negating a lot of the, the inefficiencies that we've seen for years in the, the traditional pulsing animal and feeding those calves out. So positive news, I think, for both sides of the industry. I think the, the next step is how can we continue to make these beef on dairy crosses better? Um, because certainly they're, they're, not, they're not where the conventional beef animal is in terms of overall performance and carcass yield yet. But uh, I, I think with the, the, the right bulls and the right genetic selection, and the right tools, I think producers have the opportunity to make them just as good um, and then perform very well from an eating quality standpoint. I agree. I agree. Well, well Blake, I'm going to wrap this deal up. Um, you know, this was exactly how I wanted this, uh, this, this episode to go. It was very informative, and I hope that our listeners and the people who follow this podcast uh, can can gain some information from this. And, and hopefully, you know, me and you are kind of similar uh, from the standpoint of um, I always kid kid people, especially my 4-H'ers sometimes uh, that, you know, um, I'm kind of a meat nerd sometimes. And so uh, from one meat nerd to another, uh, you know, it, it's positive to know that there's research being done that can positively influence dairy and beef herds from a carcass standpoint altogether. And so I appreciate you getting on here and, and sharing your thoughts and some of the research findings that you guys have had. And good luck to you with, with the rest of your research and, of course, getting your doctorate and all that. And um, you came to a good place to get that done. And so, uh, like I said, this episode was brought to you by Capital Farm Credit um, here in Mealshoe. Uh, Mr. Chase Lloyd helped us do that and has graciously um, sponsored a couple other episodes as well. And so we'll get this thing wrapped up and we're going to get this edited next week and, and let everybody have a great Labor Day weekend. And, you know, like I say, uh, eat more beef, even if, right. uh, if, whether, if you can get your hands on some Dairy Cross beef Get your hands on some of that and, and put it on the grill this weekend for your friends and family. Uh, enjoy your Labor Day weekend. And Blake, you enjoy your weekend and thank you for coming on today. And and uh, I, I guarantee you I'd like to come down and meet you in person at the meat lab and, and kind of go over some of that a little bit more in depth with you at some point if we can. And um, tell Dale that I said thank you as well. So um, y'all have a good weekend and we will see you at the, on the next episode, which will be coming out in the next few weeks. Thank you. Thanks, John.